This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday mornings at 11 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. It's a sense of peace, which comes from, I believe, a sense of connectedness with your friends and your family, a sense of fulfillment that you've garnered from doing something that makes you feel good about yourself. It's obviously the avoidance of unnecessary stress. But there's that general idea that you want to feel that your life has been fulfilling and you've done the best you can. Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to build the dream apartment for empty nesters. We'll ask candid questions of a doctor who's treated patients with cannabis. We'll learn about mindfulness of the ego. And lastly, we'll get advice on how to live our best lives for the rest of our lives. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a snowy day today. And because things are a little bit wonky in Toronto as we're recording this show, we're going to do something a little bit different. You and I are going to imagine our dream apartment of the future. What do you think? I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about my dream apartment on the air, but... (laughs) It has to involve our spouses. And hopefully when we're designing this, it won't be like the equivalent of Homer Simpson's dream car. Hopefully we'll be able to put something together that kind of makes sense from an aesthetic perspective. I hope that works for me because I actually have to build some. I know. This is food for thought. You're going to have to put me on the payroll after this. Good. Where should we start? What do you think? I have my ideas. Where would you start? What would be the first thing you would think of? I think before we get into some of the lifestyle stuff, let's talk about the apartment itself. Okay. I was thinking location. Okay. We can go there. To my mind, okay, so I'm not of retirement age, but I'm I'm of an age where I'm starting to think about how I want to live my amazing coming years. And with the advent, presumably by that time, of driverless cars and hopefully... You know, municipal government who can figure out how to actually, you know, clear the traffic in the city. I would want to live in an environment where where it's walkable. And by that, I mean, you know, I can walk to a grocery store. I can walk to a bank if people still do that. I don't get haircuts because I've got the wrong hairline for it, but sort of be able to sort of walk my neighborhood and get what I want. Is that something that's meaningful, do you think? I think you're uh, headed in the right direction, but not even going far enough. Oh, really? (laughs) 
to me, you know, when people talk about a 24-hour living, that's uh, one of the themes I've heard about it. I think people want to be in a neighborhood where everything you want to do is, is walkable. You know, and again, not everyone is drawn to the same location, and there are so many interesting neighborhoods in Toronto which have a sort of a, almost a different theme to them. Right. But I don't see why people shouldn't be excited to live in neighborhoods where everything is available to them. So what's the everything? What did I miss out in my list for walkability, et cetera? What would you add to that list? I would say you want to be near shopping. Right. You want to be near entertainment. You want to be near restaurants. You want to be near transit. Parkland. Uh, parkland. You want to be hopefully near your family. So uh, you, Right? So maybe, might, maybe, maybe not, but yeah. yeah well, <laughs> let's give you a chance to have grandchildren, yet you might like them more than your children. Yeah, maybe. No comment. <laughs> All right. That was where I would start. Where would you start? Listen, real estate is always about location, so I think you started in the right place. Yeah. But, you know, I spend so much time looking at competing product and agonizing over creating great apartments Yeah. that I think it's often overlooked. You know, we've talked about it before, but it's so hard for people to envision from plans and in the sales center what an apartment's going to look like. But when you spend a lot of time traveling to see product in different markets and trying to sort of piece together the best apartment possible, you know, there's a real balance between creating the right amount of space that's affordable because obviously the size of the apartment is part of what drives it. But the question is, can you fit in more living into less space? And that takes a lot of of, uh, creativity and experience and whatever. And, uh, you know, if you look back 30 years, everyone had oversized furniture right? with the advent of Ikea and things like that. The whole world has changed to work around smaller spaces. But the question is, have we really sort of explored all those options in terms of making smaller spaces really usable and what do people really want? Right. So to me, empty nesters, because that's what we're talking about uh, uh, in particular, you know, I find are often shocked by the lack of storage space and closets and that type of stuff in a modern apartment because they have stuff. They've accumulated stuff over a lifetime and we're sentimental and there's things we want and we don't want to just wear two white t-shirts all the time. So, well, but I think people are heading to the Mary Kondo school of less is more. I mean, you know, when we did a renovation a few years ago, we were forced to get rid of a lot of stuff. So our basement, which is like full storage is, is full of crap, but on our upper levels, it's pristine, it's clean. And I've been to your house and I know it's the same way, although you have more space than I do. I think people are living with less, but I hear you. I think storage is important. I think there's a big difference between having less, right? And just having, for example, the space under your bathroom vanity to keep all your medical supplies and cosmetics and all that kind of stuff. I agree. Right? So, yep. you know, are people thinking about, you know, built-in cabinetry and linen closets and things like that that really sort of can take a bathroom from being what we saw as a basic apartment bathroom of uh, 15 years ago to something that's more spa-like and inspired in terms of storage and efficiency and that kind of space. Well, you know, you have to give up. Like, you know, whereas people used to need two sinks. I don't know why, but, you know, you you see real estate shows and people say, oh, you know, we have to have two sinks in our bathroom. I could care less. And other people are looking for bathtubs when really how many baths do you take? I agree. I'm a a huge believer in 
in many cases, eliminating the bathtub altogether. And, and we're doing projects right now where there is an option for purchasers to switch from a shower to a bathtub, but where the building is planned with all glass showers. And, and that has an interesting appeal in terms of the look, because it makes yep. the bathroom look bigger and, yep. it's, and it's easier to keep clean and all those type of things. But it also has an accessibility uh, 100%. benefit in the future. I can walk right into my shower and, you know, I'm not at that point yet, but I could put in like a handrail easily in the bathroom and it wouldn't take up that much space if i need it i could put a chair in there eventually and right. i wouldn't have to step over the bathtub so yes right so so wouldn't it be nice to know that whoever is developing your project has thought about you and put the bracing behind the walls to be able to allow for you to uh, put those bars in the future without having to rip your bathroom apart yeah no that would be huge right yeah so for sure. uh, i think there's lots of things like that that make sense you know to make sure that the openings to get into the shower are big enough that they could you know have someone help you into the shower or have a, even a, a wheelchair in a variety of suites where you could access a shower. Yeah. Next on my list, and it's something we learned when we bought this house, is natural light. It can make a huge difference. Like a lot of older houses in the city, there you know, there's all kinds of trees everywhere, and they have front verandas which block out probably the biggest light coming into the biggest window, which is usually the living room window. Mm-hmm. And in apartments... I think more windows are better, but edify me. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? So I think we're we're at the uh, start of a real change to how windows are dealt with. In the last 10 or so years, the model for modern condos has been, you know, more glass is better and floor-to-ceiling windows and, and all that type of stuff. But with more of a focus on energy efficiency and sustainability, there becomes a whole sort of study on how do you create something that's energy efficient uh, but gets you the right light and the comfort. And I think there's going to be a move to a lower percentage of your building being in glass and more being solid insulated wall. But then the question becomes, how do you figure out something that makes the space really bright? You know, we went from having small punched windows in apartment buildings in the 60s where right. they were really dark yep. to having full glass walls in the last decade, which were really bright, brought with them their own problems. Like right. where you put your furniture. You've got a glass wall and it's off and you see fur- you look up at a building and you see furniture backing up right. onto it. Yeah. You know, I go back to, I don't know if you've ever had the chance, but if you ever go to see Falling Water or one of the other Frank Lloyd Wright homes, right. They have eight-foot ceilings, but they have banded windows. And the fact that the full wall has a window ledge but also is from one edge to the other in glass, it's shocking how well those homes are designed, and they're designed a long time ago. But I think it's going to take a revisiting of that to get you what you're looking for, which is natural light and brightness, but at the same time meet the standards, which, you know, Toronto in particular of light with version three of the green standards is really raising the bar in terms of energy efficiency. And it's going to take a whole new revisiting of how building envelopes are designed to attain both those things. So I'm sure you've done your research. Is outdoor space per unit important? Do people want the verandas and the outdoor space or or not anymore? So it's a really good question because I think uh, people still really want an outdoor space that they can access. 
But I think it comes at a serious cost. For sure. Uh, in terms of, uh, number one, of the cost of building it, but number two, of the, the energy efficiency of a building when you have thermal bridging, is what they call it, is when you have this fin of a balcony going through to the outside, which is really sort of attracting the cold and bringing it into the inside of the building. Right. So there's all kinds of sort of uh, approaches to breaking that uh, sort of... Uh, balcony from the rest of the structure, but that's an expensive detail as well. And the question is, do people really use balconies? Most of the time, I find around town, very few people actually use that space. And unfortunately, the reverse sometimes happens. They become extensions of storage space. You look up at most buildings and you see people's bicycles and and other things sitting on the balcony, which uh, they they don't feel they have anywhere else to go. There's a whole new redesign of buildings where bicycle storage is given a priority and bicycle, good quality bicycle storage rooms are getting incorporated into every new project in town. Right. When you go to Chicago, there are very few buildings with balconies to the same extent they're on every building in Toronto almost. Right. Uh, and I think over time we're going to see that continue. But we're going to see outdoor amenity spaces included that are going to be more common spaces, which offer a backyard or better type of lifestyle. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm not saying zero out the uh, the backyard, the outdoor space, but, right. you know, I guess it's how you conceive it. Okay, so let's, let's go to interior space. Mm-hmm. Do people, like, when you're conceptualizing for an empty nester, are they one bedrooms? Are they two bedrooms? How is that space being used? Well... Many people think of two bedrooms when they're an empty nester. For right. a long time, people have in their head, you know. What my, if I get into a fight and I need to ride I, the couch? <laughs> yes, or I, if I snore too loud and I get thrown over Yeah, exactly. Bedroom. Trust me, that's real. But, you know, then the people say, uh, we have relatives who are going to visit from right. out of town. The grandkids. We have kids who come back. We have grandkids. Yeah. You know, my, our kids are graduating from university. What if they can't find a job and they need to live with us for a while? There are a million scenarios. You know, number one, I think there's a a certain flexibility if you're buying a condo or renting an apartment that, you know, to a lot of people, it may feel less permanent than than putting down roots of the house. And I find people sort of sometimes buy more space than they need. Right. But... I think the concept of the one-bedroom plus den is finding a sort of a, a home with a lot of people as an in-between. People are saying, if I have a den with a pull-out couch um, and it has great living space, it's not the sort of uh, same budget commitment as a two-bedroom, uh, but it gives me a lot more than a one-bedroom. I've got the computer in there. Right. Uh, it can be an occasional bedroom. I think that's an appealing option for a number of people who just don't want to sort of say, I'm in a one-bedroom apartment. And I think that has to be complemented by gracious living spaces. And as we said before, proper closeting in the master bedroom and right. maybe a, you know, a second bathroom in a one-bedroom plus den setting so that it really does sort of benefit you while you're two people living there as well. Yep. Now, a room that I spend a lot of time in now in my house is the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And what are you seeing in, in terms of like, like I would want a full kitchen and I know in an apartment you don't necessarily get that. How do you bridge that gap and what sort of things are you doing in the kitchens that you're conceiving to make it feel more homelike? So we're, we're seeing a number of things. Number one, we're seeing much more open concept kitchens with islands that people sit at, right. but also can prepare at and uh, sort of are an extension of the typical kitchen of old, which was much more of a galley kitchen and closed in and small. And smaller appliances, right? 
smaller appliances are getting more and more usable in terms of the layouts of them and creative ways of doing it and uh, you know and the quality of them is improving substantially so if you've got you know you, you might have a combination uh, microwave convection oven as a second oven which allows you to sort of be cooking a number of things at the same time there's a lot of planning going into it but I think on top of that is there are a lot of, uh, of buildings considering or including, you know, kitchens and dining rooms as part of the amenity space. So that if you're entertaining for a larger group, you can book a dining room and say, you know what, I'm not limited to having four or six people over, but I could have 10 one weekend and uh, book a space and have somewhere where I could either have a meal catered or I could do my own preparation upstairs and bring it down and warm it up, et cetera. So real party rooms that, that have, uh, you know, kitchens or kitchenettes attached so you can entertain, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, when you look at some projects in town where they're doing real sort of high-quality entertainment spaces, where you have people over for a real dinner and then you roll into a lounge where there's a theater and a, and a popcorn machine and those type of things, some people will say, you know what, I didn't give up much from my house in being able to have... Uh, special events a number of times a year. Fantastic. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for chatting with us. My pleasure. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to hear about the most frequently asked questions by new cannabis patients on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. My next guest, Dr. Jonas Vanderswan, is a primary care physician, advocate, and enthusiastic proponent of medical cannabis as an alternate treatment option for patients. Recognized in Canada as a medical cannabis educator and specialist, he's been appointed as the medical director and chair of the Clinical Advisory Board for WeedMD, a Health Canada licensed producer of medical cannabis. In this role, Dr. Vanderswan is continuing to advocate for the use of medical cannabis with a focus on education of both patients and medical professionals, and is also actively engaged with leading institutions in the pursuit of furthering clinical research in the field. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Great. So I understand that you've previously treated over a thousand patients with medical cannabis, right? Yeah, correct. So I thought it would be really interesting to bring you on the show today to discuss, you know, what you've heard from those patients and, you know, what the feedback you're receiving is and and what does a successful treatment look like for for somebody who's maybe thinking about trying medical cannabis? Does that sound like a plan? Yeah, it sounds like a plan. It's a, it's a good question. Obviously, it's a sort of a, a broad topic. Yeah. You know, in terms of 
what conditions bring people through the door. Obviously, that's highly variable. Right. Certainly, the most frequent uh, indication for which patients are seeking out cannabis is in management of chronic pain. Yeah, that makes sense. And that can be due to a variety of conditions, whether it be osteoarthritis, whether it be an inflammatory type of arthritis, uh, fibromyalgia, chronic abdominal pain, chronic migraine headaches, any and all of those conditions could bring them through the door. Certainly a lot of these patients have lived with chronic pain. They know that it's a very difficult condition to treat. They know that a lot of the medications they've tried up until now have been unsuccessful, and they're really looking for that next possibility, cannabis being that natural alternative that they've heard a little bit about, right. but they'd like some guidance from a medical professional. And, and I would presume maybe some of these patients have been on opioids and are either you know consciously scaling down or being told by their healthcare practitioner, you know, you know, we have to cut you back from where you were before. Are you yeah, seeing we that? See, yeah, definitely. We see it from both angles. So a lot of it is driven by the patient. Uh, they certainly, they all read newspapers and you can't open a newspaper these days without reading about the opioid crisis and, and the overdose deaths that have resulted. And their desire is to get off these medications. They know it's not the best thing for them. They know it's dangerous. And they're looking for a safer alternative, of which cannabis has been maybe portrayed to them as being. They're also getting pushed from their healthcare providers. Healthcare providers are becoming increasingly aware of the potential negative consequences of chronic opioid therapy. And so, uh, you know, they're getting it from both ends. And, and uh, that's part of the reason they're coming through the door, looking at cannabis as an option. And in getting back to your initial question, how do we judge success? Yeah. Sometimes that success is judged ultimately by their ability to either reduce the dose of their conventional therapies or even potentially come off of them entirely. Right. Well, I, you know, in my discussions with people in the industry, a lot of it is sort of what I would consider, you know, quality of life type issues, right? Like it allows people to get on with it, right? So if you're suffering from chronic pain, this allows you to be free of that pain and then move forward and do all those things that you want to do, work, play, spouses, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think, I think that brings up a good point. Whenever we talk about chronic pain, you know, I don't think being pain-free is the goal. Right. I mean, it's the ultimate goal, but yeah. is it realistic to get there? I think we always have to keep in the back of our mind when treating patients with chronic pain is can we get them to a degree where they're seeing functional improvement? So not only is the pain better, but is it better to a point where they can do the things that they want to do? They can do the things that they're no, they were no longer capable of doing because of the impact of pain on their life. So whether that be completing household chores, taking the dog for a walk, sitting through one of their grandchildren's uh, recitals, uh, stage yeah. performances, yeah. recitals without uh, being overwhelmed by pain. Those are all things that we, we sort of have to get into it with the patient a little bit and see um, what type of functional improvement we're able to provide. Other than pain, why were patients coming to see you in the, when you were doing the clinical work? So pain by far and away was the number one cause. Sleep difficulties sure. uh, is a common condition bringing people through the door. Anxiety and depression starting to see a number of pediatric patients coming through the door with difficult-to-treat conditions like epilepsy or autism, inflammatory bowel conditions, Crohn's disease, colitis, and also cancer. We're seeing a lot of patients who are living with cancer who are being overwhelmed by the symptoms that that cancer is causing, whether that be pain, whether it be nausea, whether it be headache, but also 
the treatments that they're using right. for cancer and the are side effects, yeah. significant side effect profiles yeah. which cannabis can help alleviate. Okay, so we've discussed, you know, who's coming in and, and, and what sort of ailments they have. When they come in, what can they expect? Like when they're going to have medical cannabis, how does that manifest? What are they going to do? Yeah, so uh, currently as the system dictates, the only people or professionals that are capable of prescribing medical cannabis to a patient is a, a physician right. or a nurse practitioner. And so the patient will be sitting down with one of the, those health professionals. It may be in person. It may be over a computer screen through telemedicine. Right. And that health practitioner will do a typical sort of conventional medical history. They'll ask questions about your condition. They'll ask what you've tried in the past to treat it, the success rate of those previous treatments, any side effects you may have experienced with those previous treatments. There will likely be a brief focused physical exam related to the condition that you're looking at treating. And then there will likely be a significant portion of time spent counseling on cannabis. Cannabis is likely something that most patients have never had any experience with. Right. And so there is a, a degree of comfort that that patient needs to achieve uh, before they start to use it. And there's certainly a learning curve with using cannabis. And I think being connected with a health professional who's skilled in the use of cannabis is critical in getting patients comfortable with its use. Right. And so uh, if I were consulting with you, you'd tell me, you know, what sort of options are available to me. Once we've sort of figured out, you know, the details of why I'm there and my medical history, then it comes to the point where you've got to sort of choose how you're going to get the cannabis, right? Definitely. Yep. Currently, there's, there's really two main options. Uh, right. Health Canada has approved the use of cannabis in a dried flower form, which is typically inhaled by a patient. Right. Or a edible oil form, which is consumed edibly, obviously, by the patient. Right. And there's two, they're very different modes of treatment. Certainly, uh, seniors uh, typically prefer an edible oil. Right. Most seniors are not interested that much in inhaling cannabis, and we can certainly discuss that further if you wish. Yeah. There's advantages and disadvantages to both, however. Okay, so what would be the advantage of, of taking an edible, like an oil? Yeah, so I think the nice thing about an edible oil is, number one, you don't have to inhale it. Right. A lot of people are uncomfortable with that. There's a smell associated with it. It can be an irritant to your lungs. It can provoke a cough. And maybe that patient is an ex-smoker and don't want any, anything to do with inhalation because of concerns that it could precipitate them going back to smoking. Right. As a physician, I definitely wouldn't recommend smoking. We would recommend if you're going to inhale cannabis to use a vapor. Mm -hmm. I don't know if your audience is familiar with what's involved with vaporizing, but it essentially heats the cannabis or the plant material up to a specific temperature that releases the active compounds in a vapor form, but the plant does not catch fire. There's no burning. There's no smoke that's inhaled. Right. So, so you're inhaling steam as opposed to smoke. Exactly. So the nice thing about inhaling cannabis is it's, it gets to your brain in the quickest way by doing so. Right. so. So it'll give you the most immediate relief. So if you need immediate relief from an intense pain flare or if you're overwhelmed with intense nausea, it's going to get into your system and hopefully provide you that relief within about five minutes. You're going to be feeling those effects quite quickly. Right. And with the edibles, it takes a while to kick in. The edibles, it definitely takes longer. You're likely not going to feel much of anything for about an hour most people say they feel the maximum effect at around the two to three hour mark. Right. But the other difference lies in the duration. Of right. Action. I was going to say edibles, the, the effects tend to last much longer. Absolutely. So edibles typically will last anywhere between six to 10 hours 
whereas when you inhale cannabis, it could last anywhere between two and four hours on average. So with, with this information uh, with a new patient, how's the process? How do you determine which is the best, you know, cannabis type product and, and which sort of constituent components are more important? How does that happen? Right. So part of it is obviously patient preference. So right. they may not be interested in inhaling at all. So that option is immediately taken off the table. Uh, in terms of what particular cannabis product that they're interested in, that's a little more nuanced. And unfortunately, the scientific literature has not really caught up to cannabis. So we haven't been able to pinpoint which particular strain is going to work the best for which particular condition. Right. We just don't have that guidance in the medical literature yet. So it's essentially trial and error by the patient. Right. And certainly the health practitioner, if they're skilled in the area of cannabis, they have clinical experience to draw on to help a patient make that decision. I think a lot of the decisions in terms of what to use is also going to be guided by safety. So if you're speaking with a patient who's never been exposed to cannabis before, you'd likely at least start them with more CBD-dominant products, so lower in THC, as that will um, reduce the likelihood of any significant side effects. And you're going to walk them through that process in terms of quantity, how much that patient uses. The adage in the space is to, whatever you choose, to start low and go slow. You know, you, you've done this many, many times. Obviously, everybody's different. But this trial and error and process, is it going to take days? Is it going to take weeks? Like, how long would you take a particular form of cannabis before you determine that perhaps you have to go a different direction or, or alter it slightly? Yeah, very, very highly variable. Some patients know within a couple of days they hit on the right dose, they hit on the right product. Uh, it works great for them. Uh, some patients, it's not that quick a trial. They may need to try two or three different products until they hit on the right concentration of cannabinoids for their particular condition. So it can be onerous. It can be frustrating for some patients. But if they're willing to go through that process, I think the, the potential reward at the end of it all justifies it. That makes sense. Once you've sort of hit that point where you've got the right product, the right blend of constituent elements, how do patients deal with dosage issues? How do they dose effectively? Good question. And again, a lot of it depends on the mode of administration. Okay. So typically, if a patient is inhaling cannabis, we recommend just taking one puff, one inhalation, right. yeah. and then waiting about 15 minutes to determine the effect. If they feel that there's no effect, so no beneficial effect and no side effects, then at that point they can continue and take a second puff. And they would go through that process and gradually start low, go slow, and they'll reach a point, they'll usually reach a, a number of inhalations or a number of puffs that either provide benefit or hopefully not, but possibly provide some degree of side effects that they're uncomfortable with. And if that's the case, they would back off. And then I guess with the edibles, just because it takes so much longer to kick in, you even have to be more cautious. Yeah, much more cautious. Typically, we would not recommend say, taking a second dose of edibles for about six hours at minimum. Right. Generally speaking, when I have a new user, I would say just take one dose, a low dose, and, and we can talk about the specifics, but ultimately talk to the healthcare provider who's prescribing. And then the next day, if you find that that initial dose was ineffective, you would take a little bit more and monitor your effect. Fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll hear all about mindfulness and your ego on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. 
There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMed Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. My next guest is local yogi Tracy Sagrati. She has a post-secondary education in biology, molecular biology, nursing, acute care, public health education, and Swedish and Thai massage. She leads classes and teaches other yogis how to teach yin yoga. So we finally come to it, my friend. Uh, The day that you've been waiting for. Yeah. Confronting me about ego. <laughs> I felt like I felt like I needed to work you in over right. a number of sessions on mindfulness before no. I dropped this bomb. I know. So here it is. <laughs> yeah, here it is. Here it is. Let's do it. Let's get at it. Let's do it, Jamie. What are we talking about when we talk about ego? Okay, so there are two different ways to look at it, and I really wanted to highlight this in our conversation today. Yeah. So there's a psychological uh, use of the term ego, and you know, when we look at it from a psychological perspective, the ego is not a negative thing, right? It's, right. it's more like our self-consciousness system, right? So it's the part of us that really navigates that space between the impulses that we have and our value system, because those two things don't always match, right? It's our sense of self, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a cohesive sense of self, okay? So if you've got an intact or a functioning ego, what you might see in a person with an intact or functioning ego is that they've got great insight, right? So they understand, you know, the triggers behind their behavior, behind their actions, the emotions that drive their actions, for example. You might see that they have an internal locus of control, right? So Mm -hmm. that means in a given situation, you can act more like a hero than a slave. So do you know what I mean by that? No, edify. Yeah. So, you know, when you're a slave, right, to the situation, it means that, and that's kind of akin to having an external locus of control. It means you're tracking your environment and adjusting your behavior so that you please all the people around you um, so that you can feel okay about yourself. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? So yeah, you're, you're getting you're getting external validation. Exactly. exactly. Uh, your, your sense of self is driven by how you are perceived, as opposed to how you perceive yourself. Exactly. Exactly. So you become a slave to that, and, and in essence, you end up behaving kind of like a chameleon, right? You're, yep. So there's no coherent, integrated sense of self. Whereas you've ha- if you have an internal locus of control, you can kind of be your own hero, right? So, you know, the archetypal identity of a hero is someone who can walk into a given situation, and even if it's 
tremendously hard and takes a ton of courage and bravery to do the right thing in the face of forces of opposition, you still can do it because you're driven by your internal value system, right? Okay. So that's an intact ego, and that's actually something that you want, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and an intact ego is where we're aware of both our internal light and dark, and, you know, you're compassionate, but you're also purposeful and working on the dark. And it also means there's a kind of consistency to your behavior, right? So, you know, we all have different roles, like, you know, you're a father, you've got, you know, different roles in the jobs that you do, but there's this cohesive sense of Jamie that I interact with, irrespective of the roles that I'm witnessing in you, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Whereas somebody who doesn't have an integrated ego from the psychological perspective behaves very differently in different, you know, social versus work situations. So there's that that lack of integrated self, right? Yeah, in describing it like that, I don't know that it's inherently negative to be able to slip into situations and behave differently as long as you're still grounded, right? As long as you're understanding what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So I think the difference that you're talking about there is actually being able to function in a role, Yes. right? That's what you're identifying. And I agree, right? There are different situations where we have specific functions and roles that we have to perform and they might look different, you know, from home versus work. Absolutely, right? Or home versus a social situation. But underneath that, there's still this integrated you that's cohesive, right? Whereas somebody who doesn't have an intact ego wouldn't demonstrate that. So, you know, if they got into conflict, right? Someone with it without an integrated ego, if they got into conflict, anyone disagreeing with them, that would feel like a threat to their ego identity. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I kind of I kind of look at it, I would phrase it differently and I'm not yeah. sure it's the right phrase. I would call it a strength or a will. Yeah. You're sort of your strength of your own convictions, strength of your your own sense of morality and and decision making to be able to say, I'm going to choose to do this, whether I'm right or wrong. I've made the decision based on my own internal metrics. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you're just talking about a characteristic of having an intact ego. So I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. So, okay. So then let's look at the spiritual use of the term ego, because this is interesting because in the spiritual community, the ego has really become a scapegoat, right? So, you know, you're taught to meditate and you're advised to annihilate the ego, move beyond the ego, rise above the ego. And what they're really talking about there is not the psychological healthy sense of, you know, having an intact ego and able to be your own hero in your own story, but it's really the over-identification of the I, right? So, you attach onto an ego identity. Say, for instance, being a mother, right? Mm-hmm. A woman, you know, attaches to the identity of being a mother, and rather than performing the function of motherhood for a period of time, right, she becomes so absorbed in it that even when that functional role starts to dissipate naturally as the child gets older, she's so entrenched in and attached to actually being the mother that she becomes controlling, obsessive and has no identity outside of that role, right? And that's what they're really talking about when we spiritually use the term ego, right? Is that over-identification of one thing to the loss of all of the other parts of the self. I could see another analogy. Yeah, like, tell me. Uh, so when I was practicing law, yeah. you tend to behave like a lawyer 
in situations when you're not a lawyer. It, beca- exactly. it, it becomes who you are. Exactly. I think a lot of people who work in careers for a long time end up doing that. They, I suppose a simple way of looking at it is that they take it home with them. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. yeah, and you know, the problem with this is when that career, for example, falls away, right? And you yep. see this, I, I know working in healthcare, you know, you see people retire and they're looking forward to retirement and they retire and all of a sudden they lose that identity and they start getting sick, they're depressed, right. they're anxious because they don't know who they are outside of that one eye that they've developed. Correct. But think about it though, because so much of your, your life, you know, the actual minutes of your day yeah. is just subsumed with your career when you're Absolutely. of working age. It's Absolutely. difficult to transition out of it and be a person. I, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so this is this is actually where mindfulness comes in, in the cultivation of really developing a healthy ego. So like really creating space where we can meet in the middle between these two polarities that we're presenting. So there's like the over-identification with the ego that right. the spiritual community is kind of rejecting, right? But then on the other side, there's, you know, having a really healthy and robust ego and navigating that space in the middle because life is dynamic, right? Sometimes you're on and sometimes you're simply not. Yes. And um, navigating the space in between is really where mindfulness comes in. I think, you know, and I, I agree with you, and I think it's particularly difficult in North American society because who we are, what we do in work, for example, or our roles as parents or spouses yeah. or whatever, is reinforced in social media, number one. Yeah, absolutely. And in number two, with the commerce, right? Because yeah. because with your career, you are how much you make. And then if you're not making it anymore and you're not doing it anymore, who are you? Yeah, then you've lost Like, where's, where's your value? Exactly. Yeah, where's your value? Yeah. And so this is where the whole practice is to start to take that lens. It's like a camera that you're pointing out, right? So as long as you're externally focused on measuring yourself by that system, it's going to feel like failure, right? Okay. So you have to change the way that you're looking at it. So imagine, you know, you've got a camera looking at, you've got to turn the lens inside and recreate what a valuable human life looks like internally, right? And that's really the point of mindfulness practice. So about understanding that across a human lifespan, you're going to fulfill all these functions and these roles, but that is not the entirety of who you are. Yes. Right? There's a whole being that can watch that process. So if there's a being that can watch the mind and watch that process and watch yourself functioning in the role, you know, in various different roles, then there's something that lies that exists beneath all of those things that you're, all of these, all of these roles that you're playing in your life. And when you can connect to that being, you can really connect to a greater sense of life purpose, which is not externally measured, right? It's something that you're measuring internally yourself. And that happens through being able to be present. Is this an objective or a subjective metric? I presume everybody's sense of self-worth and where they're going to derive it is going to come from different places, even though it's all should be coming from within. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is really tricky. I think it's both. I think it's both, right? I think that part of the practice is to learn to become objective, right? And then when you can become objective, to really sink into subjective awareness, to connect to your awareness of being. Does that make sense? It does. I guess, practically speaking, like, where would you start to do this? Yeah. So what I advise my clients is to start by choosing three times a day, right? So when you wake up, at lunchtime, sort of the middle of the day and before you go to bed and just to take two to five minutes, really short because you want to be successful. So two to five minutes just to practice watching your thoughts. 
okay? And this is really hard because as soon as you watch your thoughts, you're going to start creating a whole story and you're going to engage with them. So you want to just practice watching them and notice, notice the whole emotional climate that you're setting up through your thoughts, okay? And when the two to five minutes are up, ask yourself the question, what identities are you attached to or trying to uphold? And your whole internal monologue is going to show you what identities you're attached to, right? So, you know, you, you can kind of go in two directions. When the ego is really healthy, you'll see that your, your internal monologue, your thoughts are deeply connected to your moral compass and your value system, right? And if it's really fragile, a lot of the internal self-talk is about either defending your actions or replaying history, right? So there's a lot of rumination happening. Or there tends to be future-oriented fantasies that sometimes glorify you or shower you with, you know, popularity, social acceptance, success, etc., that somehow bolster your ego. So if you notice that your thoughts tend in that direction, it gives you an indication that the ego is a bit fragile, right? In that case, you can keep working on refining your value system. And when you take those two to five minutes, three times a day to watch your thoughts, when you come out, you can start to really cognitively challenge yourself and your belief system. That sounds like great advice. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Such a pleasure, Jamie. Always such a pleasure. Next time when you come back, we're going to talk about the connection between mindfulness and self-confidence. That's right. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll get some advice on how to live your best life for the rest of your life on The Tonic. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. At Caregiver Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24-hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, Finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24 hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. My next guest, David Bernstein, graduated from the Schulich School of Business with an MBA in 1992. He worked in marketing and senior management with Procter & Gamble and Reckitt Bingkieser in Toronto, Tel Aviv, Amsterdam, and London. 
Following in the footsteps of several family members, David entered the seniors care field, acquiring Caregiver Services Limited in 2014. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jamie. Good morning. So last year I wrote a publisher's note in the magazine about four things that I've learned in the course of my health and wellness career that I'm going to do to keep healthy as I age. And similarly, you are thinking about the things that you learned in the course of your career. And I'm still learning. And still learning (laughs) as to how you're going to conduct yourself. And I thought it would be great if you came on the show and discussed that. So share your wisdom. What have you learned? Well, I'm not sure it's uh, how wise it is, but uh, this is what I seem to have uh, focused on in the last little while. It's a pretty profound business uh, because I'm dealing with people in the final stages of life, uh, with their families, where there's significant stress and concern and uh, no elegant solutions, or rarely are there elegant solutions. And so it really uh, focuses the mind when you're involved in other families' uh, situations. Sure. And what, uh, sort of what it's left me with is this general sort of high-level sense of wanting a sense of peace with yeah. myself. We all want that in general, but when you see mortality on a daily basis and you ask yourself, you know, when you're thinking or you have your own sense of fear over death, you know, when I'm 80 or 90 or 100 and and hopefully cognitively uh, there, what are the thoughts that I want to have and how am I going to, you know, set myself up to have those thoughts? And in general, it's a sense of peace, which comes from, I believe, a sense of connectedness with your friends and your family a sense of fulfillment that you've garnered from doing something that makes you feel good about yourself, whatever, whether it's work or it's volunteer or it's time spent with family, whatever that happens to be. It's obviously uh, the avoidance of unnecessary stress or financial stress if you have an ability to prepare better for sort of your retirement future. But there's that general idea that you want to feel that your life has been fulfilling and you've done the best you can. There's another section which I find a little bit more impactful day to day, and I see a lot of families struggle with, and that is the issue of how do you treat the other family members when the senior's going through the crisis that they're going through, and they're disagreeing with all the things that you as their child are telling them. You're saying, you know, you need a caregiver, or you can't drive a car anymore, or you should be taking this medication, or whatever it is that your spouse or your child is suggesting you do so that obviously their interest is that you are healthy and, and do well. But very often you get resistance and, and you get pushback from the individual. And what I found is that at the end of the day, the pushback comes from the defending of one's sense of identity and dignity. Yep. And being, you know, nobody wants to be told as an adult what to do or how to do it. Right. Imagine an 85-year-old being told by their child what to do and how to do it, even if they're right. At that stage in life, their you know, identity and dignity is so important. And I think as a family member or a close friend, it's really important to think about that that's what they're experiencing and that at the end of the day is probably more important than most other things. And so if you're going to give them perspective or feedback, do it through that lens or keep it to yourself. I remember, you know, I've had a few clients where unfortunately um, – whether it's from 911 calls or other reasons, police have had to be involved in circumstances or, or emergency folks. And the children of the elderly person will say to the policeman or the 911 responder, you know, I told them to do this, I told them to do that, and they didn't do it. And the policeman will say, you know, there's no law against making bad decisions. 
<laughs> and it's true that right. people make bad decisions all the time, and at some age, you got to let them make them, right. as long as they're not obviously putting somebody else in harm. So sort of the second theme for me is to respect your family members, your spouses, your parents, and their identity and their sense of dignity, and that even though you may have a good idea, they may not accept it. And the sort of the last most practical thing for almost anybody who's been through a crisis is one day at a time. That yeah. no matter, you know, I don't care what happens in life, one day at a time seems to be a powerful uh, sort of sedative for <laughs> to get you to the next day. Yeah, because, you know, the circumstances can sometimes happen so rapidly that, you know, to get your shorts in a knot over what's happening today may be totally irrelevant a week later. And I think we have a lot less control than we think we do. Right. So, you know, accept more. Right. So if I were going to sort of characterize what you just talked about, the, the first segment that you talked about is internal, right? How do I conduct myself? How do I want to be perceived? What makes me happy? How am I fulfilled? The second part is how do we wish to be treated and how would we like it if we were in that person's shoes, right? So we're extrapolating to the outside. Mm -hmm. And then the third is just sort of a philosophical, well, you know, once you once you've considered the first two, it's your mindset and how you're going to take in all the external criteria that you don't have control over, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So let's focus on, uh, well, why don't we start working backwards? Let's talk about how the ins and outs of of sort of how we wish to be treated if we were in, in the shoes or how do we treat a loved one who is in those shoes. So how should we treat our family members? What should we do? I think that the best thing that you can do, firstly, is be there and connect. Yeah. Forget about the agenda at the beginning, certainly. I mean, you may, for example, you know, I my caregivers are sitting with with. Uh, seniors in their homes, and we discover a lot of things that are going on. Right. And it's incumbent upon us to share some of that with the family members because okay. at the end of the day, they're in charge. Right. Or they're responsible, and we're not. But we're the ones who get access to all the information. And so we want to share whether they're showering or whether they're eating or taking their meds or there's something else going on. And when I have those conversations with the family members, they're often their initial instinct is to, oh, I'm going to tell dad to do, That's do right, that exactly. differently. Right, exactly. And I'll say, you know, just pause first. Maybe go over and talk and ask them how they're doing and maybe let some of these concerns come to the surface from a conversation as opposed to you going with an agenda to tell them what to do. Right. Um, let them discuss how things are going. And you may discover that just talking with them and connecting with them ends up being more important than correcting them. Right. Interesting you use the word correcting them, right? Because th there's an element of judge judging in exactly. there, right? Like, you know, like I wouldn't do this. Gosh, I couldn't go for a week without doing X, Y, or Z. Let's say showering, for mm -hmm. example, or cleaning or whatever it is, right? But it's different, right? We can't always inflect our standards into somebody who's lived their life a certain way or has decided to live it a certain way mm -hmm. because of their capabilities at their age, right? Uh, well, it's, it's uh, firstly, we have our own expectations and right. standards, and I think feel free to have expectations for yourself. I think having expectations for, for grown adults is uh, very challenging. Yeah, um, and self-defeating. And self-defeating at the end of the day. And so, I mean, obviously things like having somebody who is completely incapable of driving a car drive a car is something you probably need to intervene yes, on. of course. So there's categories where you right can't up. just let it be. Sa safety, health, obviously, uh, is paramount. Exactly. But 
you also, I think, have to accept that, especially for many seniors in adv- of advanced age, that regardless of what might be healthy or normal or how you might want things to be, they may lead a somewhat unhealthy, abnormal, <laughs> not ideal existence, but it's theirs. Right. And that's how they're going through you know, their day. And you can suggest, you can have discussions about it, but at the end of the day, you need to accept it. Right, because not every not every disagreement is going to resolve with a right or wrong or or an an answer, right? I mean, that's what I learned. No. There are there aren't necessarily answers, mm-hmm. right? I think what you're advocating are uh, procedures and ways to sort of uh, foster communication and come to a resolution. Mm-hmm. But a resolution isn't the same as an answer. Yeah. Well, also, I think being accessible. Making people feel heard, seniors yeah. heard, makes them also want to spend more time with you. Right. <laughs> if, if every time you go to visit your parent, you're telling them, you know, how they're they're leading their life poorly or making poor decisions, it's just not healthy for anybody. But if you are spending time with them and you're just asking about their day, you're engaging them on things that are bothering them, and you're just listening to them, you might find that they're going to make more corrections and they'll end up steering towards better behavior, or at least that's more likely out of that approach than attempting to tell them what to do. Right. So the connectedness is more important than the actual messaging. I think. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomeradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For notes on today's show or for links to our guest, visit thetonic.ca. For great articles about health and wellness, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we discuss the health benefits of fiber beating hospital wait times in Ontario, why some people are sad after sex, and disagreeing with your kids' choices. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.